Our guest today writes in his book, Embracing Our Mortality, that lawyers, as officers of the court, are not permitted to tell their clients to lie. But physicians are under no such obligation. Under what situations would it be best for us to advise people to maybe polish their recollections? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Lawrence Schneiderman, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Family and Preventive Medicine and Adjunct Professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of California in San Diego. He's had a distinguished career in medicine and ethics. Dr. Schneiderman was founding co-chair of the UCSD Medical Center Ethics Committee, and he's been an invited visiting scholar and visiting professor at institutions across the United States and abroad. He's also a recipient of the Pellegrino Medal in Medical Ethics. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Schneiderman. Thank you very much for inviting me. Happy to be here. Thank you. As a preeminent medical ethicist, you've been part of so many contentious medical legal deliberations. Our audience today is physicians that could benefit from your perspective on the law in these life and death matters. Uh, can you please enlighten us? Okay. First of all, you know, the usual disclaimer. Some of my best friends are lawyers and judges. <laughs> and in fact, many of them deplore how medicine has kind of ended up too often in the courts. Judges say they hate to make these medical decisions, but if they're forced to, there's nowhere else to go. One of the cases that really illustrated the problem for me was a case in California of a 46-year-old man who, while drunk, crashed his car and had severe brain damage, was unconscious for over a year. That would qualify him under the multi-society task force neurology uh, definition of permanent vegetative state. He was being maintained on a feeding tube. A devoted wife was allowing this to happen. Now, what happened after a couple of months, he began to show some signs of emerging to what we call now the minimal conscious state. The prognosis was very dire. She decided at that point that he started to pull out his feeding tube. That was the only really purposeful gesture he seemed to make. And imagine something that's stitched into his abdominal wall. Mm. After he did this three times, she said she didn't want to insert it again, saying that her husband wouldn't want it. That's what her children also thought. And they had some quotes of his that seemed to confirm that he would want to be independent. Well, the mother of the man was estranged from the wife, and she demanded that the feeding tube be kept intact. This case went all the way up to the California State Supreme Court. They ruled that the wife of some 20 years did not have clear and convincing evidence that this patient would want his feeding tube removed under these circumstances. Now, the physicians in the audience and anyone else I talk to have to ask, how many of them have given specific instructions what to do if they were in this circumstance? And here's the, 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 the actual reading is, only when the patient's prior statements clearly illustrate a serious, well-thought-out, consistent decision to refuse treatment under these exact circumstances or circumstances highly similar to the current situation 
should treatment be refused or withdrawn? That was the decision of the California State Supreme Court, and I'm afraid it's been echoed in several state legislatures. This is, in my opinion, inhuman. People, particularly if they're young, particularly if they have some cognitive inability, never have a chance to be this exact. And I would suspect that most of the audience has never told anyone or written anything that would say, under these exact circumstances, you may remove the feeding tube. This is why I say when it comes to only people, by the way, if, if the decision is contested, as it was in this case, it has to be by someone who has legal standing, and a mother of a patient would be considered. So you don't have to be afraid of this as a general rule, but if it comes to a battle between relatives over what to do with a doctor's patient, and you see the patient being abused by someone who has a personal agenda, which is unrealistic medically, this is where I say, you know what? You should tell the family that if they are forced to testify in court, this is a high standard that they has to be, has to be met. They should really think about what they're going to say. Now, I admit right off the bat that this is a controversial stance. In other words, are you telling doctors that they should tell patients to lie? Very close to it. In other words, I, <laughs> Very think, close to it. <laughs> I think I'm on the side of the patient in mm-hmm. this case rather mm-hmm. than on the stipulations of an unrealistic court. I've had too many cases where judges have appointed guardians, particularly of infants and uh, newborns, have appointed guardians who don't want to have it on their watch that the feeding tube or other life-sustaining treatment is withdrawn. It's the doctors and nurses who have to suffer treating uh, for a prolonged period of time a very disabled, uncomfortable patient. The judges who made the appointment never saw the patient, never will see the patient. Once again, I think there are so many instances where the law has harmed patients that I do take this rather strong stand, and it's part of being a medical professional. We as physicians have to take a stand on behalf of patients. I might add, if I may, that everyone has heard of Dr. Kevorkian. If you worry about being sued, if you're worried about that, Dr. Kevorkian is the only doctor who has ever been found guilty of killing a patient deliberately. If you follow a good course of action and can justify it, and especially if you've had colleagues involved, and especially if you take it to the ethics committee, you will be safe because the courts over and over and over again have shown that they don't want to remove the practice of medicine to the courtroom. Wow, that's a strong statement, and I think one we all need to hear. If you're new to our channel, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Lawrence Schneiderman, author of Embracing Our Mortality. We're discussing his perspective on medical ethics at the end of life. Dr. Schneiderman, I'm wondering if these issues are getting more complicated now with the proliferation of hospitalists who have no outpatient relationship with their patients or their families. 
in a way it is. I, I think that clearly there have been benefits from having hospitalists taking care of acutely ill patients in the hospital and not requiring uh, doctors who are primary care physicians who are busy in their office running in and out trying to attend to the moment-by-moment decisions of patients in the hospital, particularly in the intensive care unit. But I do think the risk is, and I've experienced this as a consultant in the ICU, that patients come in and they are strangers meeting strangers. Mm. And we don't know what went on before, what, if anything, the patient has said about his or her treatment preferences, what he or she's been told. And so this communication gap is very important to, to try to improve. I think that hospitals should make a special effort to coordinate communication between the physicians on their staff who are primary care physicians with their hospitalists, that there should be meetings, that there should be ample opportunities for communication that should be expedited so that when patients are admitted and when patients are discharged, the hospital takes responsibility that this be smoothly done. And and in that way, I think we'll try to deal with the communication gap. I should also point out that primary care physicians have a big responsibility to get their patients as to make some sort of gesture in the form of an advanced directive. Only about 20% of patients have executed a written advanced directive. In our own studies, it took a great deal of attention to patient care to get that as high as 60%. There is a problem in that. Many patients don't want to think about this, don't want to write down their wishes, they don't want, you know, and that is a problem. On the other hand, we've done other studies that show that patients do want their doctors to initiate the discussion. This can be done as a routine, just like what's your, you know, tell me about your past history, your social history, how much do you drink, have you executed or written any kind of advance directive, have you talked to anybody about making decisions in case you can't make them? I found that my patients were grateful Mm -hmm. when I introduced the topic. And I think this would be a big help if patients came in and the hospitalists actually saw that the primary physician had information that could be useful. And that would, uh, of course, make the communication much more uh, likely. Do you have a good resource for our listeners on where to find information about advanced directives to give to our patients? You know, uh, this is may sound self-promoting, but I do have a good bit of information in my book on embracing our mortality. There's a whole chapter that just deals with that and then all the complications that can arise from it. So I, I would first start them there. And by the way, it has a, a fairly extensive bibliography. Any other tips about what we as physicians can do better to avoid some of these horrendous legal nightmares that we've all heard about? Well, you know, they're only legal nightmares if doctors think of the law all the time and practice what we call defensive medicine. The fact is, historically, the law almost always comes down on the side of a physician, unless the physician really committed an egregious medical error, which is then malpractice. But if you're dealing with a patient at the end of life, where you, in a very thoughtful way, in the conjunction with colleagues, and perhaps with the help of an ethics committee, say, you know, this is the best I can do for this patient. I'm talking to the patient. I'm talking to the family. They're informed. 
this is the direction that I think we should go. We should not be attempting CPR on patients, for example, who have metastatic cancer in bed or have sepsis or multi-organ failure. The outcome for such patients is demonstrably so bad that you're more likely to harm them, breaking their ribs, shoving things down their throat, making them miserable with no realistic chance they'll survive to hospital discharge. These are empirical data that I'm citing. So under those circumstances, a doctor, just like any other professional, should say, here are the limits to what I can do and should do. That's my professional integrity. I'm doing what's best for the patient. Under those circumstances, if you have to testify to the jury, you will do well. If you said the reason I did it is because I didn't want to get sued, the mm. jury will not like to hear that. Thank you so much for being on our show today. My pleasure. We've been discussing medical ethics, especially at the end of life, with medical ethicist Dr. Lawrence Schneiderman. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you for listening. You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. 